The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. I, w- I was uh, saved when I was 17, but <clears throat> it was a few years before I really began to understand grace. That amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And oftentimes, God puts us through deep situations to make us realize that amazing grace. And so this morning, our title is Extraordinary Grace. And I want you to see the very special work that God is doing in the lives of these individuals. The same work that he's doing in each one of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask your blessing this morning as we do every week. Every week I pray that the draw of your heart to ours would grow stronger. As we who are Christians recognize Joseph and also the brothers and the two stages of lives, yet how you work both ways with each one of us. I pray, Lord, that you would just open us new and afresh this morning, that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. What awakens the human consciousness and draws men and women to Christ? It's usually customary to say that In a larger sense, it is an awareness of sin. We know sin by the law, and so speaking theologically, we could say that a person must first be slain by the law before he can be resurrected by the gospel. And that's good theology. Yet, in actual experience, it's more often that we're drawn by an awareness of God's love for us as seen in in the Gospels. For example, Christians who understand may have fallen away in sin, yet what draws them is stopping and recognizing the amazing love of God that was shed in their hearts. They begin to think about the reality that this God loved me so much that he died for me. How can I possibly turn my back on him and sin knowingly? And it's the same love that draws people who don't know Christ as they become aware of the passion that this God, whom they hadn't believed in, has for them and wants them to be his children. John Stott, uh, the great preacher and writer, once polled his congregation of the All Saints Church in London, and he was startled by this fact he found that the vast majority were brought to Christ not by an acute awareness of their sin, as he had supposed, but by the winsome love of Jesus Christ shown in the gospel. It was the love of Christ that drew them to him where they could then begin to understand their need for a savior and their sinfulness. This is not to say that God does not use other means uh, to awaken our consciences or draw men to him. We've been looking at some of these means, how God has used with the brothers in many situations. God had used the pinch of material want, the pain of harsh treatment, the press of enforced solitude, the proof of his presence in small things, and last of all, the pattern of ordained necessity 
all designed to draw them to him. These had shaken the brothers out of their spiritual lethargy and had brought them to confess their sins, at least amongst themselves. But still, there was a sense in which the most effective of God's tools was yet to come. And so in the section we're going to be looking at this morning, God uses the power of genuine affection to melt their hearts into the reality of his love. Now, law terrifies us, and it should terrify us a whole lot more than it does. But love draws. Please know, God is not angry with you. It was Martin Luther who saw that God's anger and wrath was quenched against him at the cross. And it was the very thing that moved Martin Luther in the, in the amazing push of the Protestant Reformation was the overwhelming love of God that overcame his condemning sin. So I want us to see, first of all, that God draws by his love. And this is not the first time that the brothers have received a token of Joseph's love. The very first time when they came on their way home, they discovered that the silver that they had paid for the grain was back in their sacks. And this frightened them. You know, grace to a heart that is under conviction is frightening. It brought them to recognize that the hand of God was in their circumstances. And if you recall that when they found the silver, they literally cried out, what is this that God is doing to us? So the event of God's love and mercy made them realize for the very first time that God was actively working amongst them. Now, there is nothing to make us think that Joseph's intentions were anything but absolutely kind. Unlike what we'll see in chapter 44, where the cup was placed in Benjamin's bag and he sent the soldiers after them, he didn't send the soldiers after them at all this time. As far as Joseph is concerned, <clears throat> the return of the money was purely an act of kindness. He had no hidden motives. But sometimes something like this occurs again in this story where we're going to see that grace extended even in a more powerful way. The story begins with the brothers' fear, the same fear they had when they discovered the silver the first time. At their father's insistence, they had brought double payment back, payment for the first time and then payment for the new supply. But when they presented themselves to, in Egypt and were immediately invited to Joseph's home at noon, they suspected a plot against themselves. And the text says in Genesis 43, verse 18, and the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks. The first time that, we, the first time that brought us in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Talk about a guilty conscience. Everything that's being done for them is met with fear and trepidation. <clears throat> you see, when you're in a sinful state, you can't possibly see anything good happening. You notice that? When things are bad and things aren't going well, all you can think of is this is just another shoe that's about to drop. And so God continues to show mercy. 
Joseph continues to lavish grace on them. The complaint was pathetic. Joseph intended only good for them, but they were afraid he was hostile. They said, he wants to assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys. You see, a guilty heart is always waiting for the next shoe to drop. It was when they were in this frame of mind that mercy began to be unfold on them repeatedly. Consider these few things. First, they were reassured about the money by Joseph Stewart. He who presumably executed the plan spoke to them ironically in verse 23. Peace be to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money for payment. In other words, forget about it. Let it go. We're good with the money. And imagine the astonishment of the hearts of those brothers. Second, the steward brought out Simeon as you saw so wonderfully in that video. This must have been cause for great joy because I'm sure they thought Joseph's intentions were not honorable. And they probably assumed by now that Simeon had been sold into slavery, which was about to be their lot when they were invited to his house. But no, Simeon had not been sold and now he was no longer even in prison. The prime minister was a man of his word Their brother had been given them back to them, as he said. Third, they were given water to wash their feet and food to feed their animals. These were marks of friendship and respect, not of someone who was presumed to be a spy, as Joseph had called them. And fourth, Joseph arrived and began to speak kindly. He inquired about the health of their father. He asked, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? But then his eyes fell upon Benjamin. Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And then he says, God be gracious to you. And he runs out of the room. He wasn't ready to let them see his heart yet. He was moved with compassion as he saw his full brother there. And you can only imagine what's going through the heart of Joseph to see every one of the brothers that betrayed him, plus plus the one full brother of his mother, Rachel. Fifth, an elegant feast was spread out before them. They were astonished. A day before, they had been fighting hunger. And this is why they came to Egypt in the first place. So we see them moving from being fearful to enjoying a full-blown celebration. Verse 34 says, and they drank and were merry with them. This turned into a full-blown party. And these are the brothers that are scared to death of this leader. But in their fear, in the midst of conviction of their hearts, They are being treated repeatedly with grace and mercy. The interesting thing is that the brothers enjoyed benefits of Joseph's affection without actually knowing who he was. And when the feast was over, perhaps the next day, the brothers simply got together and left. How often does God bless us 
And we don't even know it's from him. God so loves the world. And this is where the story most becomes an illustration of how millions of men and women respond to the true benevolence of God. All are recipients of what theologians call common grace, the provision of God for all persons, yet they fail to acknowledge that it's God who is working in and blessing them. In this country alone, we have forgotten that it is the hand of God who has preserved us. We have forgotten it is the hand of God who blesses us in times of great stress. All the recipients fail to understand this. In fact, Romans 2.4 lays this out perfectly. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I, I, I thought God was angry. I thought he was a God of law and you had to be perfectly holy. The word says the good things are designed to draw you to him. You remember that great illustration? I probably use it more than I should. But of the adulterous woman. And remember how they brought her to Jesus, catching her in the act of adultery. And under the law, she should have been stoned to death. And they said, now what are you going to do? And you remember what he said? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And when they were all gone, he said to the woman, where are your accusers? And she said, I have none. And you remember his words that just shout so loud, then neither do I accuse you. Jesus, through his death, satisfied the law. So we don't have to because it's impossible for us to do it. And so he draws us now with love and grace and mercy. And this is what he is doing here. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in the same positions as the brothers are right now. You have sinned against your elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, by denying his claim and refusing his proper lordship over your life. He has used means to awaken you and to draw you to him, but you don't realize it's him doing the drawing. God's tactics draw you. And even though he has been so loving and gracious towards you, you have not acknowledged his hand on your life. I want to make this clear. I want you to be awakened to what God is doing in your life. I want you to see that all you are and all you have is a result of God's common grace. Let me explain it from God's perspective. God doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't even owe you a chance at salvation. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God in Eden, God could have judged them harshly and sent them straight to hell. And if he had done that, he would have been absolutely just in doing it. Adam and Eve would have received nothing more than their just penalty. And the righteous angels in heaven would have still been able to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, Isaiah 6.3. God owes us nothing. Yet, 
as we well know, God did not immediately banish Adam and Eve to hell, nor did he later suddenly consign the masses to a Christless eternity. On the contrary, though there is a judgment to come, God has continually poured out his blessings on men and women. Donald Gray Barnhouse once wrote, quote, You are not a believer in Christ, and yet you are still out of hell. That is the grace of God. You are not in hell, but you are on the earth in good health and prosperity. That is the common grace of God. You go into your house, you sit down to a good meal. That is the common grace of God. On the moment you hear these words, there are 7.28 billion people on the earth, but you are here to hear God's word. That is common grace. If you think that you deserve anything at all from God beyond the wrath which you have so earned, you merely show your ignorance of spiritual principles. End of quote. Now, I did adjust the 7.28 billion as of Google this week. When Barnhouse wrote this, there was considerably less people. But the point is still clear. So Romans 2 makes that very clear in the verse that we saw earlier. But he says, Or do you presume... That is, do you show contempt on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you show contempt on a God who still has you out of hell and still is giving you an opportunity to come? That's the grace of God. All of us should be instantly in hell for our sins. But God's extraordinary grace preserves us in this life? Well, the answer is, of course, you, you do show contempt unless you have repented of your sins and turned back to God through faith in Jesus Christ. By nature, humans are ungrateful. By nature, we show contempt for God's kindness. Yet it is precisely this kindness that God is using to bring us to repentance. And sometimes Christians need to realize that they are showing contempt to God when they actively choose a sinful lifestyle. Barnhouse further states, to despise the riches of God's grace is the blackest of all sins. It far outweighs the sins that are a violation of righteousness. Fallen man has a fallen nature. That is why the Lord seemed to be kind to the outbreaks of the flesh. And we see this about God in Psalm 103, verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows we're messy. He knows we're weak. He knows we're spiritually dead. He knows that there's nothing we can do apart from his saving grace. And that is the common grace of God. That is the common grace that's shed abroad to all men, giving us the opportunity here to come to him and give him our lives. And this is why God is so good to the lost. He declares that the purpose of the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and long-suffering is to lead men to repentance. Why did God even permit you to be here today? The answer 
is that he wants you to turn to him and acknowledge his goodness and accept the riches that he has for you. Did you ever consider this? Joseph, a man of profound faith, met trial after trial. And yet the brothers of profound sin met mercy, grace, and forgiveness. You hear that and you go, it's not fair. Surely that's not fair. But God's grace is to draw men to repentance. Joseph, who was a man of repentance, was in the schoolhouse of God to prepare him for a greater, more important task. He was being honed and developed. But at this point, the brothers were still outside of grace. They were still outside of the family of God. And we live in a sin-sick world, and God uses circumstances to lead us to how to live victoriously in this difficult life. But listen, if you understand why God treated the brothers the way he did, then how should we treat those who treat us badly? When you consider that the vile, wretched brothers who hated Joseph, who threw him into prison, sinning against all, all the things we saw about them, sinning against their father, the father's concubine and everything they did, yet they receive grace, mercy, and truth. How should you and I treat the lost world around us? Yet how many of us rail about how bad and evil they are? If God's mercy drew you out of a life of sin, how much more should you and I be the tools to draw them to Christ? And it can only be done through love, through passion, through forgiveness, through mercy, and through shedding grace, because the love of Christ is living in and through you and I. The Spirit of God, when unleashed in the heart of a man or woman, will change the people around you. And this is why God, in such grace and mercy, lavished it on these vile, wretched men. Because he loved them. Because he was going to send his son to die for them. And we look at the world around us and we see the anger and the bitterness and the craziness and the stupidness. And we could write a book on how bad everything is. Yet how much of us says, you know what? I'm going to love them like Christ loves them. I'm going to give my life to try to draw them out of the sin that they're so steeped in because Christ loves them. And that's a powerful message we're seeing from what God is doing in the life of these men. And so what it does now is we go from common grace to uncommon grace. Now, I have spoken of common grace in the sense that God Gen, God's genuine of affection has been poured out on all persons, regardless of who they are and what wrong they have done. Jesus said in Matthew 5:45, "For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust." Common grace? Yes. Absolutely. But in other sense, it is not common at all. It's most uncommon. It is extraordinary, and it leads us to the most uncommon 
or extraordinary grace of all, and hence our title this morning. We find this very clear in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still sinners, or still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's while we're still sinners that God has done everything for us. That is love to the fullest. It's while we are still sinners and, in fact, oblivious both to the extent of our sin and to the uncommon grace of God toward us that he actually paid the price for our sins. In fact, God goes to the unheard of length of commending his love by that very fact. Commending means he entrusted his love to us while we had not yet come. While we were still dead in trespasses and sins, God commended his love toward us. Before the foundation of the world, God commended his love toward us. Before we were even born, God commended his love toward us. And now as you sit where you do in this pew, God is commending his love to you. Do you realize that the ones you rail against might be the very ones Christ has already commended his love to and that you might be the means that pushes them over the top? You might be the very tool God uses. Today, you and I may look back at Joseph's brother and fault them for their ignorance of Joseph's identity and their slowness to repent. But weren't we all ignorant of Jesus at one point? And didn't we all ignore our sin? Joseph is a type of Christ. And it is clearly seen in this picture. And it took the love of God to open their eyes and their heart to this amazing love that God has for all our sins, past, present, and future, just like he did for the brothers. So we could look at it like this. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable, de- abominable deeds. There is none who does good. But on the other side, James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, while we were still sinners. The grace of God, the extraordinary grace of God, loves you at your most vile point. 
And when you accept Christ as your Savior, he looks at you through the blood of his son as cleansed and washed. Think about that. How can we who are Christians turn our back on such great a love? And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, you have no relationship with him, understand that the same love and mercy he showed those vile brothers, he is showing to you and he is drawing you to him so that you might partake of the amazing riches and grace he has for you, not only in this world, but in eternity. God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his very son. And when his son hung on that cross, he allowed him to die because he loved you that much. How can we live any other way than but for him? How can we go from here and go back to life like nothing has happened? When the Holy Spirit desires to lead you in the life God has set up for you. You see, we've seen this through Joseph when we look at this amazing man and we see a man that was just put through one difficult thing after another, yet he never turned on God. He continued to give God all of him. And in the midst of his most downtime, when he was alone, when he was left by himself, when he was sold into slavery to a foreign family he knew nothing about, whose ways were totally different, who didn't know his God, didn't know him, didn't care about him, didn't care about anything. He said, God, I'll be the best slave I can be. That's hard for us to identify with. But these vile, wretched brothers who are sinful, sensual, rebellious, hateful, murderous, God said, I love you. And you will be my children. Wherever you are this morning, as a Christian or one who is seeking, Don't leave here this morning without understanding full well that the amazing grace of God is for you. Extraordinary grace. And that he wants to live through you to change not only you, but everyone you come in contact because you are Christian. Little Christs. Children of the kingdom. Would God be glorified in your life this week? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for all that you've done. We thank you this morning for the grace that you shed abroad in our hearts. And Lord, I know that in our humanness, as Psalm said, we're dust. We're so weak, even though we have Christ, because the flesh is so strong. And it's only when we give up to you that we find the peace and the power and the forgiveness and the strength to live gloriously for you. Lord, I pray that you would put a burden in our hearts so deep, so strong, so wide that we can't ignore it any longer. 
And whatever life is putting us through, whatever difficulty is coming, knowing that you have allowed it to do an amazing thing in and through us. And Lord, I just pray if there's anyone here who has no relationship with you at the time, they're seeking, they, they hear about this, they, they have kind of a vague understanding. But I pray that your drawing love would yank them out of their lethargy and make them run to you that they might know mercy and grace for all eternity through the blood of your shed, shed blood of your son, Jesus Christ. God, we ask for mercy today on all of us and pray that you would be glorified in and through each one of us. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless.